I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you so much for joining me again. Just a quick reminder, we have our next live podcast. That's Wednesday the 8th of February, 5.30 to 6.30 here in the UK. That's GMT. And it's entitled, What is Self-Efficacy and Why Should We Be Paying Attention to It in Primary Schools? So I do hope you can join me for that. As always, the best way to keep up to date with everything that's going on is to be um, part of our newsletter, which you can get through at Education on Far. But if you want to just go to YouTube for this um, live recording, then you can go and the handle is at Education on Fire 5530. And that'll take you to the channel and then you'll see the live one pop up there and you can get all the information. And we already have the scheduled video ready for you to go. So you can sign up and get notified for that as well. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Don Berg, and he's from HolisticEquity.org, the science of achieving equity in schools. Now we have a broad-ranging conversation about all of these types of things, about what education really is, our perception of it, and as he puts it, uh, um, he's a recovering fochiever. Um, so it's amazing kind of that idea of, of what learning really is and actually how that can support you moving forward and whether you might be doing everything on the outside, which seems to be the best thing, but whether you're actually taking that in whether you're learning those lessons whether you're living those lessons is a really important factor so I really hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Don Berg. Hi Don thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast it's always great to chat to people from around the world Um, and let's just start first of all tell people where you're from. So I'm in Oregon on the west coast of the United States and and actually in a I live on a llama ranch uh, so, wow, so, fantastic. <laughs> the, the Joyful Llama Ranch in Westland, Oregon. Fantastic. Well, that sounds like it's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle which many people would love, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, llamas are cute and wonderful. So. <laughs> yeah, brilliant stuff. So tell us, um, holistic equity, what, what does that mean to you and, and where did that come from? Yeah, so um, I've been in education for a number of years. I, I actually kind of took an alternative route into it. Um, like I homeschooled other people's kids for about five years uh, in the 90s. And, and so for many years, I've been looking at education through a lens of, uh, you know, focused on children and how they learn. Um, and then for years, I didn't even incorporate the idea of equity until recently um, when I realized that uh, one thing after doing my education stuff with kids directly, I went back and got a degree in psychology. Um, and then realize like, oh, there's this whole world of stuff that that really illuminates this education stuff in a way that uh, is not a common way in the education circles I've uh, been in. So the equity piece came about um, through realizing that the stuff that in this that the psychological studies have looked at, which is really how 
uh, primary psychological needs inform uh, learning, um, and particularly uh, needs for autonomy, competence, and relatedness, which we can talk about later. But um, but these really basic needs that are you know on the scale of like food, water, shelter, that sort of thing, um, really shape how learning works and how deep learning is. And when I realized that, oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, but then it also had this piece of like, if you really think about equity, it's really about um, denying those needs in one way or another. The inequities are a result of, deni uh, of denying or, or thwarting those needs in some way. Um, and so that, as the psychology predicts, that diminishes the, the learning. Um, and so when I realized that those things really were connected, that was how it came together. And I said, oh, okay. So what I'm thinking about is, is education, but in the sense of, of equity as a bigger piece, as a bigger piece of uh, not just, you know, marginalized populations in some way, you know, gender or, or race or disability or something like that, um, but how actually the school system is implicated in inequities for, for everyone. Um, and a lot of it has to do with diminished uh, support for autonomy or, or thwarting the need for autonomy uh, at young ages uh, and that, or, or relatedness or, or competence. So, so that's how it came together was like, oh, okay. Um, and and I, that's why I tag it holistic uh, is because it really is looking at a broader picture, not just racial equity or, or gender equity or disability equity. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I'm always keen um, when people have sort of studied something sort of after the event, as it were, because like I say, you've been involved in, in learning in, and for such a long time before. Did mm -hmm. it kind of illuminate what you thought you already knew or did it flip a switch a little bit or, or was it a common mm. combination of both? Um, it was it was definitely both. Um, there, were, uh, there was this one moment I had uh, uh, when I was doing my, my homeschooling of other people's kids, I was in a park um, teaching a seven or eight year old how to hit a ball with a bat. Um, and this is a child who had been born drug affected and had, he was the first child who I met who truly benefited from uh, a prescription for Ritalin. Um, like that was, he, he was born with serious attentional challenges and Ritalin really was a functional you know, helpful thing for him. And, and so I'm trying to teach him this and, and I'm, you know, I have another child at the time who was just this amazing athlete and he actually went on to become a, a you know, coach and, and, you know, athletics is part of his life even now as an, an adult. Um, and, and so we, these, the two of us were trying to get the other kid to, to, figure this out. And we, so we're varying everything. We're, you know, different balls, different bats, different, you know, how far away do I pitch? The, you know, the, the, the other kid was pitching sometimes, you know, trying everything we could do. But he was a kid who was, you know, not very naturally gifted in, in physical sports or, or even physical coordination. Um, so it took a long time, but eventually we succeeded. And at one point, I was pitching the ball to him. And, and I'm, I'm, going underhand and just when my fingers released the ball I had my eyes right on him and he flinched now that had this like explosion in my mind because I realized that what we were dealing with was you know we had, we had all these different variables we could control 
you know, bats, balls, pitching, things like that. But then what often my mind is, there's all these other things that aren't available to be manipulated. And what the flinch indicated was that who knows what experience he could have had in the past with balls being thrown at him or a man in front of him, you know, doing something or, you know, that that's a threat to him because, you know, throwing something at someone is a bit of a threat. Um, you know, there's all these sort of possibilities that that could never be under my control. And so what happened was I had this, you know, amazing sort of revelation in that moment of there's so much that we just don't even have access to as educators. There's just immense amounts of, of possible, you know, experience that, that we can't control. And so that was my, my, my revelation sometime in the 90s, uh, late 90s. Um, and, and I suddenly go, oh, man, teaching is actually impossible because <laughs> <You know, laughs> like, there's there's an infinite number of things that we can't control. And so um, part of that realization kind of put me in this interesting space. Now, I, it's not like I gave up. Um, I kept working kids. But I, what I realized was that um, not that teaching isn't possible, but that uh, trying to micromanage everything about teaching is not possible. And so what should we focus on? And and what I realized, what, what going back and getting the degree in psychology, really brought it home that the quality of the experience that we're generating with kids, not for kids, but with kids, is where the, the, the magic lies, is we create a space, we co-create a space with them that then has some magical effect on them called learning. Um, it's magical in the sense that, you know, we really don't know what's going on for them. <laughs> um, but when we do it well, when we do it right, um, we see the progress that's made. We see what happens when their eyes light up or they're, they have that wow moment or they, they get it at some point. Um, is, is that there's, there's this really interesting combination of things. And what the, what the psychology gave me was some language to say, uh, I, now I can say that there are these foundational pieces those fundamental needs. And I recognized that the way I was operating in my homeschooling of those kids was very much in that way. So in, in a sense, I intuitively did it in a certain way because I didn't have any training in that. Um, I just did it. Um, but I had some insight that, that was relevant. And so I shaped my environment that I provided in a certain way. Um, and, and that was where it really, when I got the language from psychology, it was like, oh, okay. I gave them a lot of autonomy. I gave them a lot, you know, it was very, being what it was, homeschooling other people's kids, it was very intimate and relational. Um, and then part of what I did was was really uh, put it on them to develop skills and to have, the, you know, like, um, you know, one day the kids wanted pizza for lunch, you know, like we're going to order in. And so I was like, okay, here's a phone book, you know, <laughs> back in the day of phone books. Um, <laughs> And and there these were seven and eight year olds at the time, and they were like, "Well, what do we do with this?" <laughs> you know. And so we went through what in another setting would be called lessons. <laughs> you know, we, here's the alphabet. Oh, they know the alphabet. They knew the alphabet song. So you know. So then then we went through every step. And I don't think because we were we operated on a budget, um, and a budget that was not going to support us ordering in pizzas <laughs> when we wanted to. Um, but I don't think we actually had pizza that day. Maybe another day. Um, but independent of whether that happened or not, what they went through the process of figuring out, based on a goal they had, how to do these various tasks that were required for that. You know, so so that was really 
I could see where everything I was doing was really aligning well with those primary needs. And I think, like I say, ordering a pizza it's relevant because I want a pizza. <laughs> I know that yeah, if it's yeah, going to exactly. happen, I've got to do it myself. If that, if that, like say, if that's the way you've created it, um, exactly. and what goes into that, you know, can I read the numbers? Can I read the, um, what the pizza is? Am I able to make that? Am I able to talk to somebody? Like say on those days, of maybe doing it on the phone rather than doing it online. Exactly. And do I have the money? All that kind of stuff. And it becomes mm -hmm. relevant in, in, in the here and now. And, you know, personalized learning, I think, is the key to, to so much of that. And I, I guess we can talk about the fact that's on a one-to-one -one level, like you say, when you're doing that sort of home tutoring, that becomes obvious because that's exactly what you're doing if it's one-to-one -one or, or very small. Right. Bringing right. that into a school setting, that's a very mm -hmm. different idea. Oh, yeah. But I guess it's still the same thing because until you know what any child needs – you don't know how to go about creating that environment or that situation. And and exactly. I guess understanding how you go about that is 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 really the, the the starting point for what that learning process looks like for that child. Yeah, exactly. And and that's where the psychology is giving us something that that you know the the need research has been done cross cultures when you know all the populated continents um, you know it's it's really well supported. And so it gives us a language to say, oh, there's this, this underlying stuff where you really can address that first. And then you're going to, you know, all your, your instructional technique needs to be layered on top of these more basic supports. Um, and so that's where it gives you an, an extra bit of language, an extra way of insight into, oh, okay, if we really nail these things, then the other stuff is really going to uh, just hit the sweet spot. Um, whether it's personalized or not, you, the question is, there's, there's, and that's the challenge also, is that I did something obviously radically different from the mainstream uh, classroom type of environment. And, but I realized that, that there's no reason, the human beings are common to both. Like it's still human beings both, on both sides of the teacher's desk. And so it's a matter of like, okay, they're still human beings and they have to have these needs supported. It's just organized differently. So yeah, it doesn't have to look like what I did but it does have to hit those supports uh, in order for the learning to be the kind of that we expect. And I suppose that's where the education system as a structure can, could be supported to change more naturally. Because like I say, if you're talking about these uh, basic needs that we need, you know, sleep, you know, well-being, you know, looking after our environment, all that kind of thing. It's interesting that maybe the system hasn't changed as much as it could do in as much as, you know, do we need to be oh. working after the school hours? You know, do we need them to be sat down for so long? You know, we can, we can still right, do right. the learning that seems to be the case. But like I say, the science and the research is there to actually say we could do it differently and it would actually be more supportive. Yeah, yeah. And that's where um, one of the things I'm working on is a, a, a project to ha have a, a system of feedback for teachers where they can um, go in and and you know ask the kids um, you know how's it going uh, but very with within the the framework of this so they say things like why do you raise your hand in class you know and they say oh well here's here's some different reasons you know I do it because I enjoy it or I do it because I'd be embarrassed if I didn't know the answer or you know there's there's different ways it can go um, but something that in real time teachers can say okay I can find out what is how well are their needs supported how how are they motivated how are they engaged um, and have that information within a day or two you know just their ability to analyze it rather than most of the sort of climate measures 
that are normally used are like once a year and then you don't get it for months, you know, that, that doesn't help. <laughs> uh, and so what I'm putting together is a tool that actually teachers can use, you know, in real time, really have the information available within a day or two at most. I mean, the, if the system gets developed well enough, they'll have it immediately, but we're not there yet. Um, but that that's the idea is like, if you have that information right now, you can change what you're doing. And you don't have to change everything. You don't have to make it look completely different, but you can change, okay, what can I do right here, right now? And eventually when they start getting this feedback, you're gonna realize that there's some things that a teacher has control over, of course, um, but there's also things that they didn't have control over. Like, why are these kids in this room with this teacher? Um, maybe that's not, you know, however that decision was made, and it's usually not made by <laughs> that teacher or those students, um, mm -hmm. maybe there's a way those decisions could be made differently so that every kid who walks in the door of that teacher's classroom is wanting to be there, is desires that, and wants to do whatever it is they're going to do that day. Um, that can be a game changer, just making them show up in a different way. Yeah, but that requires that bigger systems change. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And 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 I think there are two parts to that. One is the fact that you know, from a an educator's point of view, you know, why do you do what you do? Because mm -hmm. someone told me to. Because it's what we've always known. You know, you have to do X, Y, and Z when I ask you to do something. And I, the first point is, is you know, why are you doing it? And can you not justify it? But but you know, is what what's the right. the philosophy behind it and the psychology behind it? So if you don't have one, then that immediately takes you into a world of, okay, well, let's investigate that. And there's a bit of inquiry right. to do there. And then if there is that kind of, well, I do it like this and I believe this is working and, and it's giving me the results that I think are important for everybody. Like I say, mm -hmm. suddenly getting that feedback to say, I had no idea this was the impact it was having on right. and a, a percentage of the pupils, whether it was confidence, whether it was how they were feeling or whatever. And so mm -hmm. it, it really mm -hmm. suddenly opens up that whole world because it becomes, like I say, personalized to the extent of we can change some things and some, some things right. that we can't, but at least we're doing it with intention. And I guess then it becomes like a co-creation co of, of the environment that we're trying to learn right. in, like I say, with all those constraints or, or not. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's an important piece to understand, you know, like particularly the autonomy piece is like, oh, even if the kids don't have all the like empowerments, one of your, you know, things that you hit on with this show and 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 even if they're not completely empowered, um, if they have the sense that they had an input and that it was meaningful into what's going on, you know, that can be enough um, and that can make a difference. And so it it's there are you know degrees to which we can go in terms of empowerment like you could contrast you know summerhill with with mainstream and say well at summerhill they choose they make the rules literally um and and so that's a different environment but that doesn't mean it's not that an environment where they didn't make the rules can't be supportive it can um that's actually what this is about is like yo you you can actually do a lot and and as long as as in the immediate environment they're they're able to have a, a meaningful relationship with people and and have some power in terms of how things are going to go then it's going to make a big difference yeah and it's going to make a big difference like say engagement's going to be key isn't it as well and and right. and, it, and 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 in terms of that sort of setting the structure up in within any given situation or school i mean i guess the leadership element is is a really big one that sort of top down idea i mean one of the things that i think i loved about the podcast was i wanted to be able to give a piece of information to somebody that could make a difference whether it's something within their classroom or some information they could take to their leadership but 
I yeah, think yeah. is the more conversations that I've had, the more I realize that when it's the leadership who get it and they really want to mm-hmm. make a difference and they want to support all their staff, that's when the, the biggest change happens. Right. And actually, the, the other thing about this prototype I'm working on for this feedback piece is that the principals can go to the teachers and find out about their own leadership, you know, find out how they're doing. Um, it, it, the humanness of these needs is pervasive. You know, so everybody has it. Uh, so so it, it's something where the principal can can survey their teachers and find out how they're doing and get that immediate feedback. Once again, not a year when you, it's too late, but uh, immediately and, and, and have it on an ongoing basis of like, oh, okay, how's this doing? Are we improving? Um, and, and so, yeah, that makes a huge difference. Um, and and there's, there's levels of uh, very specific feedback we can give um, to teachers and principals or any leader um, to say, okay, here's, here's how people are experiencing it, but here's some things you can try. Here's some ways that, you know, autonomy support works or relatedness support or whatever it is. Um, and, and you can start to shift that, and, you know, like the, the, in the, uh, literature and psychology, they're now talking about motivating styles, um, is, are you supporting the autonomy or are you being more controlling? And that's where the really makes a big difference. And feedback's a really interesting point because mm-hmm. I think it's one of the things that gets people's emotions going the most maybe both in terms mm. of can you or one can you take the emotion out of it and you you take the analysis of what comes back to make the biggest difference <laughs> you know that, right. that that's really important um and also just to be very free with it because it's a it's a growing and shared experience for everyone that's going on so I'm interested in terms of both sides of this coin in terms of like mm-hmm. saying the needs that everyone has to feel safe and secure and, and and all of those elements that we've talked about and then the practical what is the feedback and how does that come because i guess right. you need both sides of that working together to to get the best results um of having these things put in place right right so yeah feedback is crucial and it needs to be feedback that actually is um done in a way that actually is need supportive so you know that's that's where the um you know feedback I've, I've seen articles that you know say you know feedback is crucial and important and you know the biggest highest most important thing and then i've seen people who say well feedback's terrible and feedback you know and it's and it's like well yes you have both views because you have people doing it poorly and you have people doing it well um and then how would you evaluate that well one of the ways you can evaluate that is what was the experience they actually had of that did they feel like, oh, okay, this is an attack on me and, and I don't feel safe? Um, or is this something where, oh, yes, this is the kind of place where we're going to get better and this is just about getting better. It's not about me. It's about how well my people are experiencing what I'm doing. You know, there's, there's ways to frame it. There's ways to do it. But if you don't have the feedback of how people are actually uh, you know, experiencing it, then you, you don't really understand why the dynamics you're seeing are actually happening um, and it gets at this level of like it, it doesn't i don't care what the technique was but it, underlying that technique needs to be something needs supportive because that's what energizes people that's what gets people to to plug in and play is you know oh this meets my needs in this way or that way they're not thinking that consciously at all but underneath their thoughts is this unconscious process saying oh that's helpful and and, and i like that or that's not helpful. I don't like that. <laughs> um, yeah. And so that's where the feedback can really be uh, done in one way or the other. And, and it makes a big difference. But if you're not getting feedback about whether their needs are supported or not, or what type of motivation they have, you're not really getting at 
the the stuff that really helps learning happen yeah yeah i guess it's that sort of peeling of an onion scenario isn't it it's that yeah. kind of uh, i've i've done the feedback bit check mm -hmm. but, right. but that's irrelevant and like I say until you've got all of these different levels of i know i've got the feedback but i know this has worked in this way i know this is how they felt about it i know that they we've got the the information and the conversations and everything that we need together and i guess that's where that like i say comes back to the leadership and wanting to set that environment for everybody um and and i guess that's where the equity comes in because we want to make sure right. that no matter what level the teacher's at, what their experience is at, what their background's about, what their formal education's like, where they live, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Right. We need to be aware of all those things to make sure that everyone's happy to, this is me today, and this is the feedback I can give you, and this is how I'm teaching and the reasons why. Right, exactly, exactly. They, those, those surface pieces, all, you know, the, the demographics or the, you know, where they're from, all those things um, are, are, are not unimportant. But you, there are some underlying kind of universals that you can point to and say, okay, well, independent of what their culture is, if they're not experiencing autonomy, which autonomy, how you experience autonomy is influenced by your culture, but it comes down to the autonomy ultimately is, okay, you're either experiencing it as supported or you're not. <laughs> um, and, and it doesn't matter what kind of culturally responsive stuff you're doing um, if it's not hitting on their autonomy and, and having them perceive themselves as autonomous, then it doesn't matter. Um, and, and that's an, that's a tricky bit. It's like, um, you know, we have need for food, right? So we all need food. Um, well, I happen to have had when I was about 10, nine or 10 years old, I had a very unpleasant experience where I ate pizza and then threw up later and it was extremely unpleasant. <laughs> um, for 10 years, I did not willingly eat anything I knew had pizza or cheese in it. Okay. So I was, and, and in the eighties about when this was, uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, um, pizza was considered, I was like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were coming in and, you know, every pizza was a big thing. And, and it's like my attitude towards pizza was the opposite of my culture <laughs> because yeah. it literally nauseated me. Okay. So if, if the reward for behavior was pizza, it eh, <laughs> doesn't work for me because I won't touch it. Okay. And so my culture says one thing, but my lived experience was certainly something else. And so if something with cheese was used as rewards, that was going to have the opposite effect on me. So that's where personalization is actually, there's a reason why that's a really important thing um, because you don't have control over what experience they bring into this. And an aversive experience is like not, like literally stops the learning like you really have this challenge of okay we as teachers can't tell who's what experiences are represented in our class until we start asking and figuring out and and finding out what's going on um, but yeah that that really um, equity piece is huge because because it has those there's these cultural overlays there's these experiential sort of you know unique confluence of who you are but then there's underlying it, the universals of autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And it's like, oh, okay. But if you can focus on that first and then go to once you've, you're assured that needs are being met, then is there residual stuff that also needs to be taken care of? Um, and that's where it's, it's powerful in that, you know, actually if your motivating style is being more, auto more autonomy supportive rather than controlling, you're going to be more broadly autonomy supportive for everyone in your class. 
And so moving in that direction is actually a really powerful tool, a very powerful way to uh, to approach those challenges. And I guess understanding all of this and having this part of your learning, no matter where you are on your journey, especially as an educator, mm-hmm. um, or even as a leader, I guess, from that point of view, then you right. set those things up early on. It's not like, I think that when I've hit my 20-year milestone, I'm going to understand all this kind of thing and I'm going to be experienced enough to kind of make this happen. It's like, I don't have the experience of a 20 year old teacher. Um, However, what I do know is that these things are incredibly important and I can put the foundations of these things in place and I'm going to learn and I'm going to morph and I'm going to change personally, you know, that personalized journey, which is mine, which I say that that, that's going to happen, but I'm happy within my own skin that I'm covering these bases and I'm getting everything back that I need to change it when I do need to change it. And of course, the people that you're surrounding yourself with, they're going to be changing all the time as well. So I would imagine even when you think you kind of have an idea of what's best, that's going to change anyway. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And that, that's, that's important, you know, sort of getting at those universals, I think is a, is a really key to, you know, uh, understanding your own process, but also understanding, okay, where 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 does where is teacher training as a as a as a field going and and can we you know get to more of these universal bits um, and and incorporate that in so that they have this solid foundation and the technologies and the the ways that they're organizing you know, that can all change but these things you know there's just no sign that they're going to change <laughs> human nature isn't going to change all that much uh and so and so you can plan for that and and move forward on that basis confident that human nature is going to be pretty stable uh and so but even if the the details around it in in our classrooms does change and this brings us on nicely in terms of, of, of kind of how you show up in the world, how sort of holisticequity.org is, right. because I guess, you know, it might be that you think that module one, day one should be this, and then, you know, your subject learning might be second or whatever whatever it happens to be. Right. Right. We, know, we, know, we know that's not the case in, in, in many scenarios. So, mm-hmm. so how does what you do and how you show up in the world sort of affect that? And I'm sort of talking, you know, in terms of should it be videos, should it be courses, should it be the book, you know, all those sorts of things? Or, or is it literally just where you can have the right touch points with the right people to sort of spread that message? Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm um, my commitment and in, in my book, Schooling for Holistic Equity, um, I state very explicitly, I'm sort of instructionally agnostic. So yeah, books, videos, whatever. But the key thing is to get to that underlying experience of whether needs are being supported or not, what, whether the motivations are more internal rather than external, and whether the agency that students bring in is more agentic, not merely behavioral. And so those are kind of moving in a direction of uh, 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 so, so I'm promoting the psychology as the underlying, you know, that has to be uh, solid. And then your instructional techniques, you know, that's where, where you know, I, I claim, I do not claim to be a teacher in the traditional sense. I taught, but that was, you know, it, not in a formal setting. And so, but I do claim I have a degree in psychology and I studied the psychology for decades, uh, a decade now. Well, formerly a decade now. Um, and so my thing is I want to promote the psychology that underlies learning. Think of it this way. Um, in medicine, you have doctors, but the underlying science of medicine is biology. 
And in fact, medical practice didn't really become truly effective until it took biology as its underlying, like this is the basic science underlying our practice. And so I believe that, that teachers need to recognize psychology as the underlying basic science in their work. And so I'm just saying, here's the foundation for it, which is these primary needs. It's called self-determination theory is the framework that I use. And so it's saying, okay, if this is the fundamentals, then how do we proceed? Um, and so instructionally, I, as I said, I'm agnostic, but it has to be, you know, lined up in, in, in sort of that the motivational styles needs to be more autonomy supportive rather than controlling because we know that you're going to diminish the learning by being controlling. But that doesn't mean give up control. <laughs> that means understand that you're structuring a situation and, and you're going to make demands. That's part of teaching is making demands of what's going to happen. Um, and so that's where looking at the bigger picture of like, okay, how did the kids arrive in the room? If they're not at choice and in, in, in some have some influence and control over how they show up in the room, then you're not going to have the best results. Um, so you need to figure out, okay, how do they? Now, it doesn't mean you have to always give them the choice. It means that you need to have ways that they influence that process. Um, this is one of the tricky things, like, like I mentioned, I brought up Summerhill earlier. I don't know if you, you're familiar with Summerhill, but it's a school where uh, it was founded in 1921, and it's literally the children, a, a democracy of children. So the children make the rules and enforce the rules that they do, and they're not required to actually attend classes. And this is uh, kids from, um, I believe, six or seven years old up to, uh, to 18? I can't remember. Um, th they don't accept kids after about 14 years old, I think. Um, but they, I think they attend longer than that. They just don't enter uh, at an older age. Hmm. But they get to make choices about whether they go to classes or not. And so that's a different social structure. Now, when they get into classes, then those classes are demanding. So it's it, some people um, look at schools like that, which generally are called democratic schools, and think, oh, okay, well, they don't have to do anything. Well, n that's not true either. They have a lot of rules to follow. In fact, um, the the uh, head of the school recent, uh, once said that there's more rules at Summerhill than in regular schools. Uh, but those rules are different because those rules sometimes name names. You know, like they say, this mm -hmm. kid is excused from that rule because of, you know, they've done this. Um, so so it's, it's a different structure, but it gets kids, when they get into an instructional situation, they're in that instructional situation in a way that is powerful for the teacher because they've chosen it. They, they want that. And so how can we make that happen? Um, and the, the, the teachers are free to make more demands of those kids, not less. Um, so it can be a very vigorous, rigorous education if the teacher's up to that rigor. Um, so it's just a matter of, okay, how do we show up? And, and traditional schools don't have to look like Summerhill in order to support the autonomy of their kids. Um, they just have to figure out, okay, how does it look in our environment where we have, you know, the state is making some restriction, you know, some demands on the school and we have to comply with that. Um, there may be demands uh, at lower levels as well. In the U.S., we you say a district may making be making level uh, demands on a school, and even the school itself may have some like, oh, we do college prep, or we do international baccalaureate, or we do you know whatever your thing is, and like 
IB is famous for being very demanding and very rigorous. And so, you know, that's the demands we make. Well, if the kids are showing up there in a way that says, oh, okay, I want that. That's, that's how I'm going to be in this school. Now, it doesn't have to be that they, it can be that they were put there and then they have to make a choice. But at some point they have to be choosing it. And that's the crucial difference is, and this is where the, I, I know you guys have, uh, some version of it, but we have in the U.S. we have charter schools, which are schools where, where kids choose to be there. The families choose to enroll them in a charter school, not just the one they're, school they're assigned to. And so that actually makes a difference. Um, it can make a difference. And, and so that's the right inclination. I think there's some problematic aspects of what we call charter schools um, because most of them are operating just like regular mainstream schools without innovating. Um, and so there are some problems there, but I think that the idea is right is, oh, okay. How can we get these kids to really be choosing either to be there or to stay there, or, you know, either to choose to go in the first place or choose to stay, um, then that's a powerful psychological support for their learning. Um, and how can we get that more broadly? Um, whether it looks like choice programs or whether the mainstream system can figure out ways to support that is the interesting question. And I think, I think it can, I don't think we have to go all one way. Um, I think that, that we can, the, the mainstreams, once they catch on to, oh, we need to support autonomy. How best can we do that? And then work within the, the constraints that you have. And I think you can do it. Yeah. And I love that. It's absolutely fascinating. And it is, and it does come back to this idea. It's all about personalized learning isn't it like you say because right, whatever right. those constraints are in any given district or any given schools within that you have the option to make it personalized and 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 i think that's that for me has often been the the real sort of crunch point of kind of what yeah. can i do what can i change like you said what can't i do and within that you make peace of that and like you say the, the basic human needs of what's important to support everyone to get to that point where they're choosing to like Ah, I want to step into this. I want to take control of mm -hmm. this. I want your autonomy of being able to say, I want to learn and I want to learn it in mm -hmm. this way. And we can right. create that environment as 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 we as we can, which is 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 really fascinating. And I think when you sort of jump back far enough to see we don't need all schools to look like this, or this isn't the right way, this isn't the wrong way, this is going to work for me, it's not going to work for you, and it might work for you or me differently within the same setup as well. But that's right, where right, the exactly. experience and, and the understanding starts to fit together. And uh, that gets very exciting then, because I think, you know, every child can go to school and learn in whichever way they need to, in a, exactly. in a way that's going to support them and, and they can feel that they can find their way and, and understand those things and it's going to set them up for all the conversations and situations as, as they grow as they grow too so um, I'm always fascinated especially with people who get so involved in education in this way is there a teacher or an education environment that, that you'd like to share that you remember that kind of has either impacted directly on, on what you're doing or also kind of sort of brings back some of those things where you can start to sort of connect those dots in terms of where that impact came from. Yeah. So I think the, the, um, the democratic education kind of field is really fascinating. And for me, the first time I really experienced that was a, a school called the village free school, which is in Portland, Oregon, which is right near where I live. Um, and it was the, uh, one of the locations for the research I did on patterns of motivation in uh, school, alternative schools like that, um, alternative to the mainstream. 
And so um, that was a school similar to Summerhill. It was, uh, you know, the kids are uh, have power to make the rules and, and, and actually enforce the rules. Um, and it's, it's, I've been in touch with them for, for over a decade now, probably about 12 or 13 years um, that I've been, you know, involved with them. And it was so fascinating to me because they're, as a school, so they're not, they're privately, they're parent tuition supported school. So they're not a public school. They're a private school in our language. And so they have had some challenges over the time that they've existed. And um, so I've seen them through changing campuses several different times. And the thing that was really remarkable about it is that they went from a, a you know, a, a capacity of, I think they had a theoretical, like a limit of about 120 students was a, was a possible size. Like they, I don't think they had reached it yet. I think there were only 70 or 80 students or something at the time. But then they, you know, the crash of 2008 uh, brought them many challenges. So they changed um, locations and uh, went to a very small size. So they actually, you know, I think they had a maximum of 45 students for a while. Um, and since then, they've changed campuses to other times. And, you know, so they've gone through these changes. And one of the things that really was remarkable about them was that they have always said that they were going to be non-dogmatic about education is that they don't have a model that they're going to stick to. They're going to say, we're, our model is what works for us now. <laughs> and so part of what they transformed was like in, in the first, when I first uh, was involved with them, they had a formal structure for uh, conflict resolution. So if, if the conflict arose, if it wasn't resolved in the immediate situation, then you wrote someone up and sent it to a committee of kids that then heard the case and you know decided on things or resolved it um well when they shifted campuses they couldn't not none of the conflicts could wait <laughs> they had to resolve yeah. them immediately and so they they dissolved the formal structure and just went to uh these kind of informal they they had systems so they had ways like um one of the things that they had developed even at the prior one was that they had gotten a lot of the older students so this is a school that is age 5 to 18 or so so it's the full k-12 range and so they had a lot of their teenagers get training formal training in mediation and so the kids could go to other kids rather than the staff to resolve conflicts and so i got involved i was volunteering at the school at the time and you know some kid came and said i'm you know and and recruited me to help solve a conflict it was a younger kid who was upset with a, a teenager probably about a 13 or 14 year old and the, the kid who was having a problem was probably eight or nine. Um, but they recruited me to help work this out. Uh, it actually didn't get resolved, and they ended up, I, I helped the younger one write up a complaint <laughs> and got sent to that formal group. Um, but it was so interesting to me that, uh, that they were so flexible with their process, is they weren't stuck with, this is how we're going to do it, and we're going to do it any other way. Um, but they were, you know, flowing with okay this is what works for us right now and they'll bring in formality when it works and serves their you know the, the needs of the kids and the staff um, one of the formalities that they've kept throughout that is what they call certifications so um, when you look at a school like this like uh, at the campus they had uh, the first time and now the campus they're on now they had commercial grade kitchens as in within their campus and so there's no like 
adults only areas in these schools like the kids have access to everything um including the commercial kitchen and so when you have you know stoves and fire and knives and you know these things you know there's a concern there well what they have is that they in order to be certified to use the equipment that's dangerous you have to be certified in the use of that equipment and so that's something a, a formal process where it involves the student the staff and their parents and they will then say oh okay we've trained you on how to use this equipment and so we trust you and go ahead you know you and or here's it, it can be we trust you and go ahead or it can be okay you've you've demonstrated safety to this level so you need either an older kid or an adult to be in the area with you um, until you get this later certification so they've developed a whole process for ensuring that the interests of safety are handled in in a way that really uh, emphasizes it and makes it important um, but it also gives the kids the freedom to say okay i want that and what do i have to do to get it even if they're younger than most environment like handling knives at nine years old well if they can demonstrate the safety through the training process which is customized as well um then why not you know uh, yeah really, really really fascinating and it makes so much sense and it and it, like, well it feeds into everything that we've been talking about doesn't it about exactly the, you know, right right thing right time right situation right environments and, and 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 open conversations about all these things because then you can put in place what's important like i say in any given situation That's um right. yeah That's really right. really 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 interesting um what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given um or is there a piece of advice now you might give your younger self looking back as a as a, as a more mature dog <laughs> shall we say? um i i'd say that that the the that i've said what i give my younger self is avoid debt <laughs> uh yeah uh I, that was something that that just uh was was troublesome uh in in a lot of ways in my early life early adult life um that that uh in in particular the student debt was something that uh i i you know caught up in the in i went to in a fairly elite school and and it was expensive um and so it was something that that you know just did not serve me well being in debt at a young age uh so i'd say avoid debt or keep it under control at least um and then then actually the the one of the things that i i can't remember where i first read it but it actually is uh the i E. E. Cummins wrote a poem, and, and he said, "To be nobody but yourself, in a world which is doing its best right night and day to make you everybody else, means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight, and never stop fighting." And I can't remember when I got into that. Probably in high school, but I, I found that to be—it's not framed as advice, but it is, to me, was taken as advice to say, you know, uh, yeah, that that really is a meaningful uh insight uh to say okay what does it mean to be yourself um and not be everyone else and just discerning that to me was a big challenge um uh, and and i found it to be really really helpful you know, ever since um is because it's it's informed how i've you know made decisions in my life and say okay w what do i need to be pursuing now in order to be who more who i am or what i want to you know do um and and so it's it's made for some interesting challenges as well uh not you know one of the biggest decisions i made was to drop out of uh reed college which is where i went 
an elite school in Portland here. Um, you know, it was a very demanding school and, and it didn't make any sense for me. I went for three years in the eighties and that's where I accumulated my debt. Um, but then I realized that, you know, I was doing it for the wrong reasons. Um, I was doing it because that was how I'd been, sh you know, shown the way to do life is just, you know, you, you do, I did college preparation program and then went right to college. And then it's like, oh, this is just what you do. Right. And then eventually I was like, this isn't really working for me. Um, and so, so that was why I ended up, um, I actually dropped out and, and, and became, <laughs> uh, a certified professional nanny. Um, and so as an, an odd entry into working with children, but it was like, I realized my passion was for working with kids. And so I pursued that. Um, and then 20 years later, eventually finished that degree. But, <laughs> but it was like dropping out and taking that path was not easy, but I think it was, uh, I think it saved me a lot of, uh, you know, cook, took me out of a pattern that was not really serving me um, and into yeah. a pattern that, that was more attuned to who I am as a person. And, and, and it's lasted for how many decades now? So <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's great advice. And I, and I think it's one of those things and everything we've talked about so far um, feeds very much into that and, and what you said exactly. in, in terms of, you know, because we're talking about creating a, a, a learning environment where we can make these things happen but it's very true that you may well be feeling all of those things within your learning environment if you're an educator or, or even being within a, a, a situation if you're a student and it's not got all those things we were talking about so therefore you're going right. to feel constricted and you're going to feel conflicted even um and how you then go about it and all the things we've talked about are going to help you hopefully change that situation or change the conversations or change the outcomes right. of conversations based on your understanding so i think i think it's exactly. really perfect and 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 if anyone's listening and the the student debt thing is an issue i do urge you to go and listen to the episode with christina ellis that we had mm. um two or three episodes ago because we we talk about some of these things as well so do yeah, yeah. if that suddenly piqued your interest as well do, do go back in and listen to that finally is there a resource you'd like to share and this can be personal or professional but um podcast book film song that's something which has had a little bit of an impact or, or something that you feel is important. So it's interesting. I don't know if people could find it, um, but there was a, uh, when, when I started really researching, um, um, started to really try to nail down what was it that wasn't working in the system? Cause, cause there's, there's sort of um, a whole narrative in this education space about what's not working. Um, and you know it might be oh tests are bad but then tests are the solution for some others and the, or or it's you know there's a whole narrative that that goes into it and there was a piece that i wasn't seeing and the one that really solidified it for me was it's some it was a it was a short film called a private universe it was a, a consortium of the big name philanthropic and higher education groups uh, like harvard and mit and um, I can't remember if Carnegie was involved, but any one of some of the big uh, uh, foundations as well. Um, and it's it's a short film. The, the beginning, you don't even know the whole thing. What really got me was the opening sequence. And what they'd done was they went to uh, Harvard graduation, so the actual graduation ceremony. So you got the graduates in their mortarboards and, and gowns and the whole thing, and and they went through and they asked them uh, very simple questions from elementary science so one of them questions was why are there seasons 
or the, the, the when they did a physics challenge, they had a single battery, a one piece of wire, and a light bulb, and say, can you light the bulb with just these three things? And these, okay, this is Harvard, <laughs> this is MIT. Uh, these are people who are getting degrees in science, and they failed to answer this questions, these questions, simple elementary level questions. And it just blew my mind that that so consistently, not everyone failed, but it was like the majority. And and there's a um, Howard Gardner of multiple intelligences fame uh, wrote a book called The Unschooled Mind. And in it, he has a whole section where he goes into research on uh, what I now call faux achievement, fake achievement is, you know, he went through this raft of research that he didn't do the research. He just pulled it out and said, okay, well, look, the majority of people with advanced degrees do not understand some of the most basic concepts in their own specialty. And yet they have an advanced degree and are oftentimes in, in, in working in that field. And so there's, that's what I call faux achievement is they didn't like when we think of education in an ideal sense, and especially the the kind of uh, the way we have grades set up and age segregation and things like this. Think, oh, okay, they say they learn something really basic in first grade, and then and then they've learned that so well that when they're in second grade, they build on that, and it gets more and more. It's like, and you have this nice, neat progression in your mind. And it's like, nope, <laughs> that's not how it works. And in my own experience, you know, I studied just enough to get by. I studied just enough to get the grade I needed. I wasn't really learning the subject i was learning how to take that test how to pass and get the grade and those are two very different things so a private universe and there was this uh, another one uh, 10 years later called uh, minds of our own that also had a similar uh opening sequence um and 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 so that was when i you know like realized that faux achievement is truly a, a big thing and it was actually after finding that that i found read the book Unschooled Mind by Gardner and, and went, oh, he has a whole section on this. Um, and so that to me was a resource that really brought home that the central challenge of education is none, usually not the things that most people are talking about. It's this faux achievement thing. It's the fact that, that we have a society in which the majority of people faked their way through to advanced degrees and to, you know, the, the education system is blind to it because degrees are how they measure success. So if you're blind to the central problem, then we've got a big challenge. Um, and that's that's where trying to bridge the gap between these schools that operate in very different looking ways, but I think are doing something that, that even a mainstream school can do it with this underlying sense of like, here's the real core of learning where these needs are. Um, then I think we can start to, to shift probably gradually, but you know, definitely make a serious shift in whether how to do the learning in a way that's not going to make faux achievement a natural outcome, but make it a more unusual and strange thing um, is if we can get really authentic learning to happen where the achievements truly are achievements where they intellectually understand the lesson, then we've got something different going on. But that was, that was the resource that, that really brought it home to me that faux achievement was a thing. It was real. It wasn't just me thinking, Oh yeah, I just kind of faked it. <laughs> but like, no, yeah. this is actually a real thing. There's actually real evidence to, to show that it's a systemic problem. And, and the psychology was the, the field that I found most addressed that possibility. Um, just yeah. it's not in the public conversation yet enough. 
No, well, hence the reason we're here, and that, and that, and that's the most important thing. And uh, and and the other thing I loved is the fact that we often we often talk here about the acronym Fire in terms of feedback, inspiration, resilience, and empowerment. And I love the fact yeah. that that part of our conversation happened <laughs> much earlier in the conversation because it, it's an it, it's an it's an integral part of of what I believe, but it's an integral part of I think what's important in education as well. And I think that that to me just sort of summarizes what a great conversation this has been in terms of learning and understanding as well because it's it's, it's right at the heart of everything and, and I'm, exactly. I'm, I'm so grateful for for you sharing all of those all that inspiration and all that wisdom and and all that experience so just finish off tell people where they can find out more about you and the work that you're doing and get involved yeah so um my website is holisticequity.org um and so that's where I've put up, uh, I've got videos on, on a variety of topics. And, and my new book is Schooling for Holistic Equity, How to Manage the Hidden Curriculum in K-12. Um, and so that just came out uh, recently. So I uh, really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk and, and chat with you and, and, and your audience and appreciate it. Thank you very much. Lovely. Thanks, Don, so much. I really appreciate that time and that insight. And yeah, we'll have links to all of these things on the show notes as well. So better click through and, and get access to that very easily. Really appreciate your time. And I really hope we get the chance to speak again soon. Thanks. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.